Open your Bibles with me once again, if you would, to the book of James, James chapter 2. Those of you who haven't been here in a while, we have been continuing our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of this great book, this great letter to the first century church that has been asking the question, what does your faith, Christian, what does your faith do? Not just what do you know, not just what do you believe, not just what can you regurgitate, but how do you live? Because true faith fights for joy in the midst of trials. True faith seeks the Lord for wisdom, trusts the goodness of the Father's heart, finds ways to live out the Word, most notably with our mouths but also among the helpless and the hopeless and in regards to our own holiness. Those are all themes that we have visited just in the first chapter of the book of James. This is, as one pastor calls it, this is practical street-level Christianity. Today we take to the streets once again and we hit a topic that was not only culturally sensitive in the, James, in the day of James, but it's one that is culturally sensitive and relevant in our day as well. So listen and follow along as I read chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. If you are able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. He writes, My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Or you sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. 
If you've been here for any length of time, you know that I often like to begin my sermons with some quote from everyday life and often from parenting since that is my life. I want to begin with a phrase, a phrase that maybe you've heard, oh boy, here comes trouble. Oh boy, here comes trouble. I suspect that more than one adult in my life said that about the teenage Nate Hitchcock. Picture this, a tall, lanky kid dressed in skate shoes, baggy shorts, a t-shirt, long bangs down to my chin, a hat on backwards, and a skateboard in my hand. Oh boy, here comes trouble. You better believe that when I walked into stores at the mall, there were times when I was watched a little more closely than the average shopper. Was I attended to, like other customers, did I look like the kind of consumer that would be a priority to someone walking into a store? Of course not. I was, I was suspect. You know as well as I do that in our society, image communicates so very much, right? Think about your life. Someone uh, drives up, you're out and about. Someone drives up in a limo. They, they step out of that limo in a, in a tux. In fact, the person who was driving the limo opens the door for them. And, and what do we do? We think, wow, that guy must be important. He must be famous. Who is it? And without even knowing who he is, we, we give him special treatment. We stand in awe of them just because the symbols of our day, a limousine, a tuxedo, have told us that he deserves it. Our passage this morning calls us as followers of Jesus, as the church, as the palace beautiful, as John Bunyan called it in Pilgrim's Progress, to be different than the world to think and to speak and to act differently. These verses center around one word, the word partiality. Some translations use the English word favoritism. That's what the NIV uses if you have that in your lap. The Greek is actually an an idiom. It's It's a Greek idiom that literally means to accept a face. In other words, to treat someone differently, in this case here in the book of James, in this case better, because of their face, because of their outward appearance, because of how they're displaying themselves. It's something we know about in our day and age, don't we? Something that grabs a lot of headlines. Let me suggest then a word that carries a little more cultural punch, the word prejudice. Verse 1, my brothers, show no prejudice as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
You see, while we can think at times of prejudice narrowly in terms of skin color, in terms of race, the English word prejudice simply means to prejudge. And that's really what our text is talking about here this morning. Prejudice describes the human action of judging someone based upon their externals. Oh boy, here comes trouble. Another synonym would be the word discrimination. I have this morning just three simple truths for us. They each build on one another. They're all interconnected. And the first truth is this. Prejudice denies your faith in Jesus. Simply put, prejudice denies your faith in Jesus. Here in the first century in Asia Minor, the issue surrounds one's status in society. Here's the situation, James says. A Christian house church gathers... And the wealthy who are used to their courtside, ringside, box seats are given the same seats in the house of God. Meanwhile, the poor who are used to the bleachers, who are used to the back row, who are used to sitting on the floor, who are used to standing room only, are told to do the same. And James says, absolutely not. Prejudging based upon race, based upon socioeconomic status, is antithetical to the gospel. Prejudice of any kind. You can't hold the faith and discriminate and treat others based, treat others differently based merely on externals. And James says it's inconsistent with the gospel. And he says it by saying it's inconsistent with the Lord of glory. With Jesus, the Lord of glory, do you see that title that he gives Jesus at the end of verse 1? There's a, there's a focus in these verses. There's a comparison, a contrast and comparison between two glories. You have Jesus, who is the Lord of glory. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God. John says in his gospel that we have seen his glory. And and what does the glory of Jesus look like? How does he embody and define glory on earth in the ways that his disciples have seen it? Certainly his purity, his righteousness before men, absolutely. But how did that display itself? Well, it looked like a birth in a stable. It looked like growing up the son of a blue-collar carpenter. It looked like an adult life that never owned a home, an itinerant ministry centered on a dozen local guys, a lot of them just fishermen. A ministry that touched the lepers, that stooped to look the broken in the eyes, that sought out the poor and the needy, the fatherless and the widow. A life that seemingly ended in a criminal's crucifixion with a body that was buried in a borrowed tomb. And we say, that's not quite the glory that the world's drawn to. 
Verses two through four describe the kind of bling (laughs) that catches our eye. Wealth, power, success, that which smells nice and makes us feel important. That's the kind of glory that our culture conditions us to give honor to. But the church is not interested in that kind of glory. We're interested in true glory. We're not interested in glory that moth and rust will destroy and thieves will break in and steal. And so James, by naming his half-brother Jesus, the Lord of glory here, is, is contrasting true glory with the glory posing as such. True glory helps the helpless. True glory is humble before men. Therefore, to choose man-centered glory flies in the face of all that Jesus is about. It obscures the beauty of his person, the beauty of the gospel, and the kingdom that he came to proclaim. Prejudice denies faith in Jesus. As one pastor wrote, if you have no Lord, if you have no Jesus Christ, if you have no eternity, if you have no unshakable truth, if all you have is material positions and material possessions, then prejudice makes sense. But it doesn't make sense when there is a Lord of glory who has laid claim to our hearts. Paul told the church in Ephesus that God's intent was to declare the manifold wisdom of God as he broke down all barriers. Racial, class, whatever they may be, to form one people under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Prejudice denies your faith. As we talked about last week, this is part of Remaining unstained from the world, then, is not letting the world's value system find its way in here, into the church. But let's build on this a little bit. Prejudice denies our faith. That's the first thing to remember. But there's a second truth that I want to unpack for just a moment, and it's this. Prejudice denies the heart of the Father. Prejudice denies the heart of the Father. James leads us without naming Jesus or or saying the word. He leads us to the gospel. In verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Going back to last week, remember God is a God It was a heart for the helpless. And he continues in verses 6 and 7, but you've dishonored the poor man, the one I came to choose. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? What's going on here? What is James speaking about? It's not as if James is prejudiced himself against the rich. That's not what James is doing here. God is not prejudiced against anyone. God shows no partiality, Paul says in Romans 2, 11. But the reality is, in James' day, in this situation, and often in our world, it is the rich 
who are often the oppressors. They are the ones who too easily use their influence, too easily use their resources for, the self, for their selfish gain rather than for godly gain. And apparently that was happening in the first century church of James's day. These rich landowners, the same guys who mocked the Christian faith, who mocked Jesus and his followers, are dragging the poor into court and breaking their backs with taxes, with legislation, with accusations. And yet, and yet still, there's this, this functional favoritism that's happening in the church. And James says, don't you see the inconsistency? God's heart is for the oppressed. And so James says, remember who you are, how God chooses from where you have come. That's what Paul says to the church of Corinth in that very familiar passage in 1 Corinthians 1. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of no, were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish to shame the wise, what is weak to shame the strong, what is low and despised to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human may boast in the presence of God. And so the church of Jesus Christ from day one has been a church filled with nobodies. And what I mean by that is that money doesn't talk here. White collar, blue collar, letters behind your name, they don't matter here. There's no boasting in our accomplishments. There's only boasting in the mystery of God's grace. After all, we, we, we actually, every one of us, no matter how many PhDs we have, we all are deserving of God's prejudice. We've all sinned and fallen short, and yet we've received mercy. And this is God's great reversal. This is part of God's great work that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. This is His heart towards His people. I'm not saying PhDs are bad. We need them in the church. But they're no better than anyone else in the economy of God's people. Deuteronomy 10, 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awesome God who is not partial. He executes justice for the fatherless, for the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners. And that leads us to the practical outworking of these simple truths. If prejudice denies our faith, in the Lord Jesus. If prejudice denies the heart of the Father, then in our life together, in the palace beautiful, this must be the case. And this is our third truth. Mercy must triumph over judgment. Mercy must triumph over judgment. In his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi wrote that during his student days, he actually read the Gospels and seriously considered converting to Christianity at one point in his life because he believed that in the teachings of Jesus, 
He found a solution to the caste system that was tearing apart his country of India. And so one Sunday he decided to attend services at a church in hopes of speaking to a minister. And when he entered the sanctuary, it's told that the usher refused to give him a seat and told him to go worship with his own people. And Gandhi left the church and he never returned. Paul exhorted the church in Rome in Romans 15, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. The culture of James's day, of Jesus' day, was one of division, right? So Jew and Gentile, race against race, class against class, powerful against the weak. Jesus came and he wouldn't keep the written or the unwritten rules and he calls us to do the same. Rather, he demands that we do the same. The church must speak love. The church must speak mercy. And James preaches a little fire and brimstone here in chapter 2. In these closing verses, he states that prejudice is the antithesis of the command to love. If the name of Christ and the reputation of the Father isn't enough to dissuade them, he reminds them that one violation of the law is all that it takes to be guilty of the whole law and deserving of judgment. And so he says, be careful. Don't show favoritism. Don't show prejudice. We may think That prejudice is a little thing, but it isn't. It denies our faith. Ultimately, it reveals our lack of submission to God's law, a law of love, a law of mercy. And so as children of mercy, mercy must triumph over judgment. Now, brothers and sisters, I think this is one of those things that we in the church think we have down, but maybe we really don't have down. And I'm not just speaking to this local congregation. Maybe there is some poignant application to your hearts this morning. But the church, by and large, our problems are not the same as they were in James's day in the first century. But I do think That in our culture, in the air that we breathe, there is a subtlety to how we prefer some over others. It's almost imperceptible at times. I mean, I think about those people that, that make me feel uncomfortable. People that you think make you feel uncomfortable. What would enter your mind if if a person like that walked into here on on Sunday morning? Would a judgment be made? Would a a conclusion be drawn before they even open their mouths? And a person donned in leather with piercings everywhere. How about an Arab man with a large black beard? We need the Spirit of God to search our hearts. We need the Spirit of God to reveal our need, to reveal those those little pockets of prejudice that are antithetical to the gospel and to the glory of Jesus. 
We need to learn to let the gospel transform how we look at people that, that maybe we're even fearful of. And I'm not saying be unwise or not be cautious, but, but guard your hearts and love with a bold and, and fearless love. That's what James calls us to. That's what he calls the church. And, that, and that's what makes the palace so beautiful. that we're all in the same place. We're not judging one another. We're walking by grace. Some of us are further ahead than others. Some of us are injured and are on the shoulder in need of some care. Let's be a people where mercy reigns, where love reigns. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning, for the challenge for us as a people, as a church, to be those who are governed by the law of liberty, free to live as Christ lived. Oh, give us Christ's heart of compassion. Give us Christ's ability to not sneer or fidget at the broken, at the needy, at the helpless, at the one who is so radically different than us. And teach us even greater how to be people of mercy, how to be people of love. For this is what we have been shown. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your church when indeed that is displayed to the world around us. Give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.